<clears throat> Today, we begin studying one of the most well-known stories from the Old Testament. Not many uh, biblical stories have had a musical made about them. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Was I in that musical when I was in high school? Yes. Yes, I was. I was Reuben, the oldest brother, and the baker. And despite any requests you might have, I will not be performing this series as a musical. I know, I know. Life is full of disappointment. Deal with it. And I can assure you just wholeheartedly that you do not want to see me dance. It is in the interest of public safety that I stay away from the dance floor on every occasion. You can't unsee it, and I would prefer you to look me in the eye for in the future. Uh, the Joseph story is critical to explaining how the nation of Israel grew from one family into a nation. And it's basically the transition period between what life looked like with God from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to where we pick up the story in the Exodus where the nation of Israel is huge and they are under the control of the Egyptians. So it's an important link between the promises of God that were made to the ancestors and to the Exodus narrative where Israel becomes this huge nation. And it also explains how and why the Israelites ended up in Egypt and sets the stage for God's great work in the Exodus. Now, something that you're going to notice as we go through this story is that the Joseph story is different stylistically than the Jacob story, which we covered so thoroughly not long ago. If you remember, the Jacob narrative and everything that happens in it, it kind of felt very chaotic. Um, you kind of never knew what was going to happen next or who was getting to get involved or what they were going to do. You had a bunch of dishonest people doing dishonest things without any sort of plan as to how they would live in their relationship with God. Now, in this story, it, it, or in that story, it was God who showed himself to be the, the anchor, the, the foundation of everything that was going on. He had made a promise to Abraham, a covenant that he was determined to keep. That promise was passed to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to Isaac's son, Jacob, who was chosen over his older brother, Esau. And throughout that story, God, the keeper of the promise, ensured that Jacob, the receiver of the promise, knew his presence and blessing, even it when it was clear that Jacob was not deserving of such faithfulness. It seemed at times like the narrative of God and his relationship with that family was holding on by the thinnest of threads. But Jacob, we saw, was changed by God's faithfulness. He became more and more the person God wanted him to be, but that transition was messy, and in its wake, there was dysfunction, anger, and deep hurt. I don't know if you're aware of this, but sometimes family members hurt one another. Ultimately, despite all the human interference in God's plan, however, God kept his promises. Jacob prospered, had 12 sons, and Israel was on its way to becoming a great nation. Now, the Joseph story is not that kind of story. 
It's not that, it's not as chaotic. Throughout the Joseph story, you get a distinct sense from the writer that it's moving forward very purposefully from one episode to the next episode to the next episode. And even though the events don't make a ton of sense as they're happening, you know, because the narrator tells us, that God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish no matter what gets involved or what obstacles he might have to face. And in a lot of ways, the Jacob story is a lot bigger than the story of Jacob because this story does not only involve one family, but nations and governments. In fact, it involves most of the known world at the time. And so as the story progresses steadily, moving people and powers and kings, they are all moving to serve the purpose of God, what God wants to happen and what his plan is. And whereas in the Jacob story, Jacob was one of the main problems. I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? And he had all of these self-inflicted wounds, all these things that he kept struggling with, bringing difficulty and hardship to his family. In the Joseph story, Joseph was both the marksman and the mark, meaning that he was the one that God chose to accomplish his purposes. He was the one that was sent forward to do these great things in the world, and yet at every turn he had a target on his back. And as the narrative presents it, most of those targets are not earned. They are things that simply other people do to him that get in the way of what God was wanting to accomplish, so we think. God had chosen for him to rise. He would become a great leader for God. But throughout his life, Joseph was besieged by those who came between him and the dream. And it doesn't start in Egypt. It starts at his home. So let's dive into the first chapter, and today we are only going to cover four verses. That is a mercy to you on my behalf, or on my parts, all right? So let's open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Okay, so narratively, there is a lot that's accomplished in these four verses, yes? And though we aren't told a whole lot of specifics, these verses do a really good job of setting the stage for what's going on. But it's not the best way to start a story about a biblical hero, is it? It's kind of ugly right off the get-go. And in order to grasp what was going on, we are going to review something from the story of Jacob. You might remember, uh, I think it was lesson number five, I'm sure you knew that, uh, where we went over what I called the birthing contest in the story of Jacob. So we're going to go over that again. Jacob and his wives began to have children. So here is the flow chart I created for us 
to understand what's going on. So there we go. So we have Jacob and Leah and Rachel, right? Leah was the oldest sister, Rachel the youngest sister. You know all the shenanigans that took place there where he married Leah through a deception. God saw that Leah was not loved because Jacob loved Rachel more. That's who he wanted to marry. And so he gave her four sons. The first son was Reuben, which sounds like the Hebrew word for he has seen my misery. It's a great nickname to have. Hello, he has seen my misery. Simeon, who uh, his name mean, means one who hears because God heard Leah. Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. And Leah actually said, now at last my husband will become attached to me. And Judah, which means praise. This time I will praise the Lord. Now, just to remind you, what's interesting about this is that the names describe, in all of these cases, the mental state specifically of the mother, right? And so he has seen my misery. God has heard me. Now my husband will love me, and I will praise the Lord through the birth of all these children. So this took place over how long of a time, we don't know, but we know it's at least four-ish years that all of these feelings are there. And during all that time, right, Jacob still loves whom? Rachel and not Leah. And Rachel remains childless. So she got jealous of Leah because Leah had turned into this baby factory, cranking out all these sons. And so uh, in, in chapter 30, verses 1 through 2, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became very angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Okay, so now there's a little resentment growing on the other side of this, right? Because she can't get pregnant. She wants Jacob to make her pregnant. And what does Jacob say to her? It's not me that's doing this to you. It's God. So Rachel gave Jacob her servant Bilhah uh, to bear children for her. And any children that Bilhah had would have been considered Rachel's children. So Jacob slept with Bilhah and she gave Jacob two sons. Dan, which means he has vindicated me. And Naphtali, which is my struggler, the wrestler. And his name signified, I have uh, had a great struggle with my sister and have won. So I want you to realize, again, something at this point. They're all in the same camp, all right? They're all the same family. So every time a name is called, that name is almost an affront to one side of the family or the other. You see that? I have struggled and I have won. I will praise God and maybe now my, my husband will love me. It's an ugly back and forth with names. And Leah could not let this go. She was upset that she had stopped having children, so she gave Jacob her servant, Zilpah. And um, Jacob slept with Zilpah and she gave him two sons, Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means I'm happy because I'm winning. I know. I'm thinking Bryce is a pretty good name. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Uh, now, Reuben, the eldest son, 
was out in the fields and he harvested the mandrake plant. And the mandrake was known to be an aphrodisiac and was used to make someone more sexually effective. It was also a poison, so do with that as you will. Uh, Rachel got word that Reuben had harvested and she asked Leah if she could have some mandrake. Leah agreed, but only for a price. So Genesis chapter 30, verses 15 through 16 say, But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. And this whole procreation thing has become about as impersonal, I think, as, as, as it can be. But God heard Leah's complaint, and she gave birth to two more sons. Their names were Issachar, which sounds like the Hebrew word for reward. God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. And Zebulun, which means honor. God has presented me with a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. Now, who's winning at this point? Leah. Leah, right? But we still have to notice that even down to the last son that she is born, she says, maybe now I have earned the honor of my husband. Maybe now that I have done all these things, my husband will love me, will care for me, will honor me. Finally, we are told that God remembered Rachel. Now, had God forgotten about her all this time? It's not clear. The only thing that's clear is Jacob says, it's not me that's doing this, it's God. And then at some point, God heard Rachel and remembered her. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph, which is close to the word addition, to add. May the Lord add to me another son. Thus, Jacob's family was created. Now, are there any problems or issues here that we can see? Yes, there are problems and issues that we can see. Now, before we pick up the Joseph story, which we're going to jump back to 37 here in a second, <clears throat> I want you to remember that between the time all of this happens and the time that we pick up the Joseph story, a lot happens. Okay, they return back home, peace is made with Esau, they establish their own camp, God blesses them and renews the promise to him. All these things have happened. But let me ask you this. Does the kind of hurt that we read about in these names, inflicted by family, do those things go away very easily? No, they don't. This may be a silly question, but how many of you have had a relationship with your family strained or know of relationships in your family that were strained that just never seemed to get worked out? The bitterness, the resentment just stuck. Yeah, probably all of us do. Or have heard about these situations and these relationships. So let's go back to 37. And let's read it one more time. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. 
Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, to say that Joseph was born into dysfunction would be a little bit of an understatement, right? I mean, in some ways, he couldn't be born into more dysfunction than he was born into. And we know, and this is putting it lightly, that Joseph did not have a good relationship with his brothers. How do we know? Well, the Jacob story tells us that Joseph was the youngest of all of those brothers. We know that another brother comes next, who is Benjamin, right? But Benjamin doesn't count in this part of the story. It is Joseph that is Jacob's favorite. But our introduction to Joseph, besides what we saw back in the Jacob story, is this. He snitched on his brothers. The youngest, and what we can assume is the least capable, probably doing more menial tasks around the house than being out in the fields where all of his 11 brothers were snitched on his brothers and it's almost like this little nugget was thrown in there so that we can better understand the dynamics that are at play not only is he the favorite but he acts entitled or wants to get his brothers in trouble i mean we're sort of we sort of get that vibe from this there were other reasons why Joseph was easy for, why it was easy for uh, Joseph's brothers to resent him. Again, we said his name is Ad, to Ad. He was added by the mercy of God. He was a gift to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and therefore he became Jacob's favorite son. According to his brothers, however, they would have said that the addition of Joseph was not a good one, that they could have done without this brother. And here's what ended up happening. Joseph and Benjamin, again, who's not mentioned in this part, they were uh, almost like a, a second, tighter, closer family within the entire family dynamic. And we know, based on what we're told here, that Joseph in particular was, was spoiled. And at some point in his 17 years, he became a rival to his brothers. And it might have happened immediately. Because we know that Joseph is treated different as an adult. But my guess is that translates all the way back to when he was a baby. Maybe he got all the things as a child that his brothers didn't get. Maybe he was given more leniency or other things when his brothers were working so hard. The, the implication of these verses is certainly that Jacob adores Joseph in a way that's almost like, okay, buddy, <laughs> like, that's enough, right? And, and here's the question. Who knows, who in this group knows that Joseph is the favorite? Everybody. Everybody knows. Because of the way he's treated, 
and because of all the things he has. And this is the example that we have. This whole problem is exacerbated when Jacob gave Joseph the infamous coat of many colors. Just to be clear, Technicolor was not invented at that time. So we're going to leave the Techna off. It's one thing to feel like your father loves your siblings more. It's quite another for your father to make a statement that it's true. And make no mistake about it, this coat is a statement that Joseph is his favorite. The multicolored coat would have been a very expensive and special gift in part because of the cost of the dyes it would take to make it. But it is not the expense that really irks the brothers. It is what the coat represented. Every time Joseph wore it, the brothers were reminded that this spoiled brat was their father's favorite. They were reminded that Jacob did not love their mother as much as he loved Rachel. They were reminded that Jacob did not love them as much as he loved Joseph. The coat was also, in some ways in this story, a mark of almost like regal status. Like he, in a sense, is being crowned, anointed. This is the one. This is the place, the person on whom the future of our family rests. Now, it's important to ask this question, who should have been favored? Well, traditionally, it would have been the first son. Who was? Reuben. And the son of his technically first wife. By all accounts, Reuben should have been the one who uh, was the head brother. He should have received favor and been chosen as the one to lead. But he was passed over just as all the other brothers were passed over for Joseph. Eleven brothers passed over. For Joseph. We must remember, though, that in Jacob's story, the passing over of the eldest is not such a strange thing. After all, God chose Jacob and not Esau. So perhaps Joseph didn't realize what he was doing, but the story doesn't play that way. What the story says is that Jacob simply did not care. If his love for Joseph hurt someone's feelings or created drama. He loved whom he loved, and he let everyone know it. So from the very beginning, friends, Jacob did not do Joseph any favors. Joseph showed that he was willing to stir up as much trouble amongst his sons as he was in the family he grew up in. He creates this for Joseph. And Joseph, being a young man, clearly didn't know how to handle it or to act differently. The brothers were not fooled. They knew what was happening, and they resented Joseph because of it. In fact, the passage tells us that they hated him. Now, this word hated, you have to understand that it has teeth. All right? It's not just a feeling or an emotion that they're having because this hate drives them to pretty extreme action. It is a force within their lives that they must deal with. And thus, at the very beginning of the story, in the first four verses, 
we have a power triangle created between Jacob, Joseph, and all the brothers. It's a triangle of love and hate. And everything that we are going to see in the Joseph story stems from these dynamics, dynamics that Joseph and his brothers did not create. Nevertheless, they are what sets this whole story in motion. So come back next week when things get dramatically worse. We talked a lot in the Jacob story about how God works and moves and blesses in spite of the faults of the people he was dealing with. We talked about how God kept his promises, even when those he had promised these things to were not faithful. And I want to remind you that this is really good news about God. Because Jacob and his family were a mess, but God did not wait for them to become less messy before he moved in their lives. Let me say that again. God did not wait for them to become less messy before he moved in their lives. Instead, God was faithful and good, kept his promises, and as Jacob got to know God, he was changed by that relationship. But there's a couple other things you need to understand about this. Just because Jacob made this great transformation, his problems did not go away. In fact, they were passed down almost... <laughs> represented by an object that is literally given to his son. They are passed down to his children. And they are dealing with the decisions he has made and continues to make. The problems that he had created for himself stuck around, and that baggage was passed on, and all of those kids have to deal with the life that Jacob lived and with the man that he is. Therefore, Joseph was a product of that mess. It shaped his lives, and the lives of his brothers. So I want you to know something as we launch into this story. The story of Joseph is not a story of how great Joseph is. As he responds to God in ways that no one else can or will. And becomes this most powerful figure in the world. Joseph had his own issues, okay? We certainly see pride some arrogance, most likely. So I want to remind you as we begin this story that the heroes of these stories are not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. The hero every time is God. And that's what makes this story powerful, you see. It is God who is faithful. It is God who is good. It is God who guides these messy people through the mess so that his will can be accomplished on this earth. And maybe Joseph doesn't make as many mistakes, or at least we're not told about them, as we were with Jacob. But I want you to know that Joseph doesn't go anywhere without God. Period. Joseph dies in a well. Or Joseph is sold into slavery never to be heard from again. But Joseph's story is not that story because God was present. God was present. That's good for us. It's really, really good. 
Because as Randy mentioned earlier, you know, you kind of hope the new year is going to go great, and the new year starts, and we're already planning a funeral. And that's kind of how life is a lot, isn't it? It's kind of how life is that you get past or over or drag one obstacle behind you and another one pops up. And so many times we sit back and wonder, like, when is God going to remove obstacles from me? When is God going to make this easier? If God loved me, wouldn't he move this stuff out of the way so that I don't have to deal with it? Well, listen, if there's one thing we've seen clearly in the story of Jacob and that we will see clearly through the story of Joseph, it's that obstacles are going to come, okay? The road is going to be bumpy and twisty and backtrack and flood, and trees down, and all the things are going to be on the road. And we don't see God removing those things so that Jacob or Joseph doesn't, that they don't have to go through it. We see something better. We see God tackling all those obstacles, all those problems with his people. And as they journey through these things with God, they are changed. They are changed. Because God is with them. And therefore, their story is not defined by the things that stand in their way. Their story is defined by the miracle of God giving them victory even in the middle of the worst circumstances. Amen? And God offers that to us. It's so wonderful to know that as much as things are going to keep coming our way, we are not fighting those things on our own. In fact, we know that through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that those things that come our way have no power over us. They have no power over us. Because God has already overcome those things that would keep us separated from him. God has already overcome. And therefore, we face whatever comes our way, knowing that we might come out with new scars or bruises, but we will come out of it. And that as we lean on our God to help us through the most difficult of things, that we will see him be faithful in ways we never could have anticipated in ways that were not our plan for him to participate in this with us, but it's so much better. Because we, friends, are the redeemed of God. And redemption means you take something 
that is far away or broken or hurt, and you restore it. You give it new life. This is what we live in here. This is the story that we are a part of. And I praise God that through Jesus, we don't have to live a life of simply fighting obstacles.